Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who have left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today, I'm talking to John Zengardi. Our guest today is the Chief Information Officer for the Department of Homeland Security. Previously, Dr. Zengardi served as the Department of Defense Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer and later Acting Chief Information Officer. He also served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Command Control, Communications, Computers, Intelligence, Information Operations in Space. Dr. Zangardi is a retired Naval officer, flight officer, and served in a variety of command and staff assignments. He's a native of Scranton, Pennsylvania, a graduate of the University of Scranton. Dr. Zangardi was awarded a Master of Science degree from the Naval Postgraduate School and a Doctorate of Philosophy from George Mason University. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Eileen. It's an absolute pleasure to come and see you again in your new role. Thank you for having me here. Let's begin. Can I call you Dr. Z? You can call me Dr. Z. You can call me Z, Z Man, or John, whatever you like. (laughs) Tell us how you got into public sector. So I grew up in Scranton. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the term Scranton from the TV show Office, you get a sense of what Scranton's like. Growing up there, as you went to college in Scranton, you realized not a lot of opportunity there. So you started looking around as a kid and going, how can I escape from this? And I remember growing up and looking on TV and seeing pictures of California and going, wow, they don't get snow and look how pretty it is out there. So as I looked around, I realized I really didn't want to be an accountant because that's what I majored in at the time to go out and do that. Uh, so I saw the increase in uh, naval aviation going on at the time under President Reagan where we were building up the fleet. And I said, you know, that looks pretty cool. And I signed up and I went into naval aviation. It's literally how I got in there. Scranton is a great place to be from. There's wonderful people there, but the opportunities were just so sparse. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there in the audience who grew up somewhere else where there weren't a lot of opportunities and they headed to Washington. (laughs) Well, we're glad you did. Thank you for your service. You have a PhD. Why did you pursue a PhD and do you use it in your job today? So I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, Anyone out there in the audience who's done a PhD understands the level of effort that it takes to get a PhD. So I always felt the need to pursue uh, knowledge. Um, I'm intrigued by knowledge. So being able to go out to George Mason University as they were starting up the Shar School out there, it was uh, it was an honor. I got to study under uh, Dr. Frank Fukuyama, Marty Lipspit, uh, David Armour, uh, some really pretty prominent names out there. So it was an honor and a privilege. But what they did for me in terms of expanding my horizons is incalculable. Uh, I look at a PhD as a another set of tools in the toolkit. Right, you. You, you realize when you get a Ph.D. that you have the capability to learn whatever you want to learn. One of my cohorts from the school, uh, Kip Thomas, Dr. Kip Thomas, got the same degree I did. And he is a professor up at uh, Boston University now running a lab in neurobiology. I mean, you talk about expanding your horizons from focus on public policy and economics and that sort of thing. And then moving into the neurobiology field and running a laboratory. So. To me, it represents the ability to do whatever you want to do, that you can learn and master whatever you want. George Mason, two of my kids went there. That's a great school. It's a great school. I was just there last week for a graduation ceremony. Uh, My old cohort, uh, Dr. Kip Thomas, uh, Vice Admiral Bruce Lindsay, Dr. Sarah Maxwell, and myself were a study group. 
and they asked us back there to participate in their graduation ceremony last Thursday night. So that was an absolute treat to watch young kids go across the stage and get their bachelor's or their master's degree or even their doctorate. So l- let me turn that around a little bit. So, you know, you're, you're watching these kids go across the stage. They have the opportunity to continue the, their uh, education to pursue a Ph.D. Do you find that your academic background has helped you while grappling with some of the hot issues in IT today, like data privacy or the use of artificial intelligence? So my dissertation was in the international regulation of top-level domain names. So it, so it was mainly about trademarks and patents and legal stuff. Uh, and it brought in fields like game theory and some other fields from economics. Um, so the answer is yes and no. Um, so there was an academic endeavor portion of it that I thoroughly enjoyed. But you realize as you start looking at things about how are we going to deal with privacy, and I don't own privacy for the Department of Homeland Security, but I work very closely with the privacy office, that you find yourself, you have a better understanding of the issues that they present, and you have the capacity to frame all of those things in another way. Like I said earlier, the PhD gives you a nice toolbox with great tools in it that help you look at things from different perspectives. Uh, Bruce Lindsay, Vice Admiral Lindsay, and I have talked a lot about how it helps you look at your decision-making process differently. Let's fast forward a little bit uh, to your decision to join the Navy. Now, Scranton, Pennsylvania is in the middle of the country. I don't see a lot of oceans uh, right there in Scranton, Pennsylvania. What made you choose the Navy versus another service? A simple one sentence. They were hiring. (laughs) It doesn't get much simpler. No, they were hiring. It was exciting. It looked like fun. Um, I've never had the desire to be in a foxhole. Planes look cool. And they still are cool. I get excited when I go on a commercial plane and I can smell a little of the exhaust. I have four kids, and I have encouraged every single one of them to spend some time in public service, uh, not only because you're, you get to be part of a mission, but you also get the experience of, of depth of, of activity that in private sector you may not have the opportunity. Early in your career, did you have any stories that you can share that really helped build a foundation for who you are today? Yeah. Um, so I think I've talked to this story a few people on my staff. You know, when I was younger and uh, much more naive and probably a lot more arrogant, you know, we tend to do dumb things. And uh, so long time ago, back in the 80s, flying out of Hawaii, we did a range up in Kauai. Some people out there in the audience might have heard of Barking Sands. And being a P3 uh, bubba, we would go out there and drop torpedoes, typically put two crews on the plane, so you'd put two torpedoes on the plane. It was a great day, beautiful sky, wonderful weather, but the plane had a hard day. All the engine-driven compressors were down, so we didn't have any cool air. It was hot. A lot of the computer systems failed. So we were doing everything offline, dropping smokes in the water, timing ourselves on stopwatches, really kind of basic stuff. And... uh, so I we went to drop the torpedo, and these are X-torps. They don't have a warhead on the target, which is in a submarine. It's kind of like another torpedo. And I pressed the button, and two torpedoes came out. Not one, two. You taught me a lot of lessons about life. Uh, I earned a moniker, two-torp, for a while. And in the squadron, we had a monkey on a surfboard. And if you did something stupid, we sort of had a kangaroo court, and I had to keep the monkey on the surfboard on my desk for quite a long time until someone else did something to earn it. Uh, That knocked me down a little bit in terms of realizing, hey, you're not that good. Anyone can make a mistake. And then the real issue in life is, how do you recover from a mistake? And I think also it's important that you can't be afraid to tell people about the mistake. Now, 
you were asking for something early on in life. Um, this is so long ago, it doesn't bother me, and it's actually kind of funny to me now. But when it happened that day, it hit me hard. It hit me really hard, and I couldn't believe it happened when the ordinance said, torp away, another torp away. Not a good day. You learn a lot from your successes, but you learn much more from your I'll put it in the category, not successes, because they have to be lessons, not failures. Failure is important to success. You're right. Do you embed that into your leadership style? They see me fail all the time on my staff, so they're, they're used to seeing that get embedded. Um, as a leader, you have to realize at my level that you're, you're mostly very wide and very thin. You rely upon your people, and you can't be embarrassed to ask questions. I've seen many leaders hesitant to ask the question because it might show how much they don't know about a particular topic because, well, that might make you look not smart or not informed. Um, you can't be afraid of looking bad, if you know what I mean. And, and the person who's talking to you, who's below you and notices that, they need, to, they need to make sure they speak up and tell you in a polite way. They shouldn't be putting you down, but they should be educating you on what you don't know. So I know from being with my staff for a long time, they're not afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. Um, and I'm used to being wrong. I don't like to be wrong. And I work hard not to be wrong. But understanding that you can be wrong and that there are other opinions and you have to take them into account is critical to leadership. Uh, if you don't listen to your people, you're bound to go off in the wrong direction. I'm speaking with Dr. John Zingardi, CIO of DHS. Coming up, we'll talk about the call to help protect our nation's cybersecurity interests. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dr. John Zangardi, CIO, DHS. Dr. Z, you've worked in the IT side of government for well over a decade. This is a challenging and complex time for government IT professionals. What was or what is the biggest issue you believe you faced when you started versus today? So the problems have really continued on pretty consistently over time. They vary. Um, funding is an issue, and that kind of dovetails in with communications. A lot of IT professionals speak in IT to leadership, but most of your leadership doesn't speak IT. They speak a language called English or something that resonates in practical terms. So the ability to convey in simple terms what a complex IT matter means. So what I mean by that is if this system goes down, uh, commerce on the St. Lawrence Seaway stops. You know, to convey it in a mission-oriented term has always been a very difficult thing for IT. And that's particularly relevant when you slide over into the cyber realm because you want to be able to explain to leadership uh, as your authorizing official for DHS to explain to them in English what it means when I accept risk for the department, that if the system's exfiltrated or compromised, this is what the bad thing is that happens. Technology is another issue. It is moving at such a rapid pace, and a lot of the processes within government don't keep up with that pace. Uh, having grown up in DOD under the 5000 series and even here, we don't always move quickly enough to bring in that technology. But there's also a talent gap, uh, as you know, Government workers in the IT and cyber profession do receive lower compensation than they do in industry. We try to compensate for that with things like cyber retention incentive pay or playing up the importance of the mission, and the mission is very important. The mission is very interesting. There's a patriotism factor. 
but getting the talented staff on board that can talk technically and bring that technology in is also another problem we have to work with because the technology changes so fast, you constantly have to refresh your skills or bring in the right people. Culture also plays a part in this, though I will say I've seen a lot of improvements in culture, particularly when you're looking at business systems. In the past, working on business systems, I used to talk about change management. I used to get blank looks. Nowadays, when I talk across the finance community or the, the HR community or even the contracting community, there's a greater openness to realize, you know, we need to change our business processes. It's going to be hard, but we recognize change management is important. So when you talk about funding, communications, technology, talent, and just culture, those are probably the constants throughout the decade plus I've been doing this. So let's go back to talent. Um, you know, there's plenty of other countries out there that are very focused on getting their younger next generation educated in the areas of cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. I read a quote from you and uh, a, a speech that you gave at ACT IAC, and you said, I'm competing with a salary and I'm competing with you guys on quality of life while not having an easier hiring process. But the thing, thing I'm really competing on and this is where I think I beat you guys, I think you're referring to industry, is service to the nation and mission. Clearly, this is a big issue, um, you know, cybersecurity and getting our technology uh, up to speed in the U.S., recruiting and maintaining our talent pool. So how are you doing that to help defend our borders with DHS? So it, it would be really sad for me to say it's all me. No, it's a team effort. Um, and, and let me give credit here to Angie Bailey, who is the Chico for DHS. Angie is, is leaned forward on the hiring of uh, people, particularly in the cyber profession uh, with CTMS, cyber, cyber Talent Management System. Uh, so let's talk about the hiring process for government. Uh, the first time it was put in place was under President Coolidge. The next time we revised it was under President Truman. I think we were using typewriters and maybe tubes back then. It wasn't exactly a hiring process built for where we are today with tablets and the advent of 5G and IoT and probably quantum computing down the road not that far. So when you look at folks like Angie and what she's doing across her organization with CTMS to accelerate our ability to bring in talent and to bring those people in when you need them, that's critical. It's, it's not a lone wolf kind of game. It's a team sport. We're also reaching into the colleges and universities. We're working on an internship program. We're going to bring in 20 to 25 interns through the summer and into the fall to augment what we're doing. I believe that if you get these young people in there, and we're talking uh, veterans or people in college or recent graduates, you get them in there and they get a chance to play with the mission, see the mission, and you do the right kind of mentorship with those people, you might get them interested. And then you get some of their recent experience at school. Maybe they were a computer science major or a systems engineer ma major, and we can bring them in and take advantage of that exuberance that comes from youth, uh, their willingness to take on change, and their willingness to dive deep into things. So I think, you know, between the ability to, to hire people more quickly with expertise in cyber and the ability to bring in younger folks, we can begin tackling the problem. Retention, on the other hand, is something we have to work on. And I think the the, the battle there is fought by what can we do to increase their salaries? I can't compete with industry. You all know that. But cyber incentive retention pay helps equalize me with cyber pay throughout the government. 
what can I do to make sure my folks are spending their training dollars right and that we get them the skills they need? So on cyber retention incentive pay, we link performance with the position and the certificates. We made sure that the certificates they're getting, the qualifications, line up with their position. And when they get these things and they exhibit the performance, we reward them. It's a challenge, but it's a workable challenge, and we have to get at it with a positive attitude. Do you think uh, the new IT uh, generation of IT executives are ready to take on a mission faced by our government protecting our cyber borders? There's some uh, organizations in uh, the UK, for example, a hospital that was, um, you know, their systems were brought down and, and put under ransom. Um, that they realized that, you know, keeping their systems updated and maintaining a good security posture is extremely important. Do you think that we need to invest more in the mid mid-tier executive in the government and provide better education? So the reality is uh, we're going to be more and more reliant upon the younger generation to pick up the, the slack in the future. Uh, the baby boomers are going to be uh, followed by the millennials, and they're already taking over executive positions. I have seven, several excuse me, millennials working for me right now in executive positions, and, and I can assure you, Aileen, that these men and women are doing a great job. So you are right. They are younger, but there's advantages that come with youth. youth. They're more open to change. They're more open to try things. And, yes, there is some inexperience, but that's why folks like me are there to go, hey, I've had a lot of management and leader experience. This is something you need to think through. So I'm enthusiastic about these young people, the millennials coming up, and what they can contribute. We have to mentor them in the leadership and we have to take advantage of their expertise and technology, their willingness to take on new things, and their openness to new ideas and channel it in the right direction. I can tell you I own digital services on my staff, and if you're familiar with the digital services team, uh, they're typically young, they're coming from industry, they're very innovative, they're great people, and boy, they bring a lot of motivation and solve problems for us. Why would I want to take advantage of that resource? You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, and our guest today is Dr. John Zagardi, CIO of DHS. So, Dr. Z, working with the government can be very complex. There's many factors that make it different from working with private sector, from complexities of procurement and contracting to clearances to lack of budgets, which you brought up earlier. With the government's need for technical talent, can contractors help fill the gap? So contractors are a vital part of my team. But remember, for every group of contractors there, you need to have government in charge. Um, so I view them as a positive contributing member of our team, and we treat them as such. The key thing here is to make sure that you have the government supervision in place and that the govies that are in charge of supervising these contractors have the right expertise to judge what they're doing. And that's the key piece. We are reliant upon contractors throughout the federal government, particularly in IT. I have to ensure that my govies are trained right and that they're monitoring the work that's being done. That's on me to do. We work very hard in that area. Um, you're right about the complexities of trying to get a contract with government. Uh, Soraya Correa, our CPO, and I work very closely on the future options and things that we'd like to do with network modernization, going to the cloud, or even SOC optimization. So the partnerships, like I said before, this is not a lone wolf approach, but I have to leverage Soraya Correa and her team to make sure that the things we want to do with vendors and the contractors is executed in a fashion that brings the best benefit to the government. 
So you have decades of experience, uh, you know, working with contractors, managing very large, complex contracts. What advice would you have for our listeners out there that are contractors uh, on how to be a good partner with the government? That's a that's a challenging question because I, I think there's a, a lot of variability out there among govies and what they like and don't like. So I'm only going to speak for myself on what I like, uh, but I do see a lot of other folks who, who feel the same way. Um, sales pitches usually fail. Um, my staff tends to not enjoy them. I know salespeople are important, but what we really, really enjoy is a straight-up technical discussion on the technology. That's what's interesting. How does it work? How do you put it in place? Show me the successes you've had with it. So that technical discussion, or you might even shave it a little bit and say, hey, the operational advantages of this are uh, less on the sales and more on the technical. And I know sometimes for, uh, for folks out there in industry, that's a tough one. But trust me, uh, sometimes your engineers are your best salesmen. <laughs> that's great advice. I'm speaking with Dr. John Zangardi, CIO DHS. Coming up, we'll talk about the call to help our nation's cyber interest. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dr. John Zangardi, CIO DHS. You held the position as the deputy CIO and acting CIO for the Department of Defense. That's some pretty interesting times. What was it like being the acting CIO of the Department of Defense? It's a great experience, and I am sure Dana Deasy over there is having the time of his life. Uh, the opportunity to affect positive change on the national security front is unparalleled. It's also one of the most complicated jobs in government. If you can imagine the DOD spends, depending on how you slice it, about $43 billion a year on information technology. Now, it includes a lot of things, including embedded IT, but it's a, the scope of the job is incredible. It includes things from nuclear command and control and communications, MILSATCOM, uh, business systems. It includes a plethora of how are we going to move to the next generation of office productivity systems. It's an incredible job with uh, an incredible reach that is a lot of fun. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for what Dana's doing there. I think he's done an outstanding job to date in a very challenging environment. It's not, it's not a light lift. So is there anything particular during your role there that you're um, specifically proud of? So we did a couple things that I, I look back on. So when we were looking at moving to electronic health records for the department, there was a really big push um, to see, can we get there? And I'll tell you, the, to, to take the time and go through the security procedures and mitigations that we were going to put in place before we put our military servicemen and women's records in an electronic health care system was incredible. That's something to be proud of. Other things we were proud of is we began the move to, you know, uh, office productivity systems in the cloud. That's a really big deal. That is. Changing the way we do things. That's an important thing here. We also spent a lot of time with Spectrum and making sure that the story behind um, why we could give up some spectrum or why it would take much longer to give up some spectrum was understood. Uh, when you have a radar system on a ship or a radar system on a plane or whatever, just picking up one day and shifting it is not possible. It takes upfront research and development, some engineering, and then you've got to go through installation. 
So something like that could stretch out. And if you think about ship availability periods, it might take two to three years to make the change where you have an availability period sufficiently long enough where you can go in and make that change. So on those sorts of things, conveying that story, working through those hard problems on the security front or the nuclear command control and communications front spectrum are all things that I'm very proud of. You can really feel your passion around leveraging innovative technologies to help uh, meet mission objectives. So tell me, why did you go to DHS? So DHS is a, is a great organization. It's manned by a lot of superb people. And they offered me the job to go there and be the CIO, and I like challenges. Uh, and I've been very fortunate to go there and make a lot of improvements. We've made positive changes in terms of how we deliver IT. You know, we do some amazing things there. In the last couple months, we moved our headquarters from the Nebraska area complex, so about 940 people. I'm sure I got the number wrong, but over 900 people. We moved them over to St. Elizabeth's, to the south, southeast of D.C., you know, when you think of IT, that's a pretty big lift. And it doesn't just include your network. It includes our secure networks. It includes the SCIFs. It includes all the secure VTCs and regular VTCs. It's a pretty big move. And we did it. I won't say flawlessly. But we did it in a way where the customer was happy. And when they left their office at the NAC or Nebraska Area Compound on a Friday and they showed up at St. Elizabeth's on Monday, their stuff worked, and if it didn't work, we had the guys there to help them get it to work. So those sorts of things are incredibly rewarding. And i got to point out here that we work very closely with Tom Chalecki, who is the lead for our facilities in DHS. So that was another one of those things where you're not a lone wolf. wolf you got to work with the team and figure out how you can deal with all the construction challenges that he faces when you think of building a new building and how you're going to bring in IT at the same time and bringing those two different facets together. So working with Tom and his team, it was incredibly valuable. And I want to give a plug here to one of my senior executives, Joe Harrison. And Joe, if you're listening, thank you for what you do every day. Well, I have heard you referred to as an IT wrangler, but you sound like a, you're an IT slash culture wrangler to uh, be able to transform or at least lead the organization during the transformation uh, from DHS uh, into one of the federal government's top IT performers. That was a, a big move. Um, you really have pushed the advancement of cybersecurity technology, ID management capabilities, cloud computing, and data analytics. I got to ask you, how did you get or how did you set the stage for, you know, these the culture, the organization, the mission, adopting emerging technologies like AI or cloud automation or analytics or 5G? So you really have to understand your customer and the customer wants capability. So let, let's start with basics. I sat down with my senior executives today, uh, Donna Roy, Joe Harris, Steve Rice, my deputy, uh, Paul Beckman, my CISO, uh, Cynthia, uh, Mark Lerner from DS. I feel like I'm missing some folks here. I apologize. Brian Teeple, who's my CTO. And we talked about the challenges we have in front of us and what we want to accomplish over the next, excuse me, the remainder of the calendar year. And, you know, the biggest thing for us is getting the budget right. And Melissa Bruce has the, the right experience to drive home. You cannot accomplish anything without money. That's a known fact. You know, Terry Halverson, who's a good friend of mine, always used to say the job of the Pentagon is to 
fund things. That's how you make things happen. And, and that's the first thing we had to do. Where's the money? Where are we going to get it over the next year to take on the initiatives we want? Well, let's be clear. The expectations of our customers are increasing. As we deliver capability, they want more capability. That's good. That's not a bad thing. The second part here, we talked about it earlier, is talent management. We have to make sure that we're bringing on board the right talent. And right now, with the, the labor market as it is, it is a challenge. We have to find innovative ways, which we talked about, to bring on people who can help us deliver. So the oil, the gas in the machine, whatever you want to call it, or the electricity in the battery is budget and people. you got to have both of those things. But we're going to start focusing on how can we do more workforce empowerment. So think about what we could do with Office 365 and future office productivity systems. How can we deliver better capability that allows us to work in a more collaborative fashion across the department? Those are the things we're going to focus on. We also need to focus on cleaning up our architecture. So we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how we can better instantiate our trusted Internet connections. So I've talked a lot about going to virtual ticks and changing how we do that architecture. I've got several data centers. I've got to consolidate them to free up money. And by the way, I want to move those things to the cloud or decommission those things. And I don't want to do a lift and shift. I want to virtualize and get them out there the right way. So when you think about the future workforce, how do I create that enhanced mobility experience? The other piece here, and this is like probably the thing that wraps around it, security. Right At the end of the day, everything I have on my network, I say the DHS network, the nation's network here, is secure. We have to ensure that we're doing the right things with continuous diagnostic monitoring, how we're looking at our security operations center optimization, how I'm working the ATO process to make it faster. Now, we've taken some steps to make it faster in the past with authority to proceed. So for systems that are not financial or related to privacy, we have found a way to accelerate getting systems on the network. So how do we make things go faster yet still make them secure? So budget, talent management, workforce empowerment, creating that greater mobile experience and CDM security. Dr. Z, there's been so many articles written about the new battlefield is really cybersecurity. It sounds like you're doing a ton to help DHS establish, to help pr protect our homeland from that perspective. You're sitting on the front lines of how this battlefield is developing with a perspective to be able to see both technologies that are available today and tomorrow. Are you concerned about some of our nation's adversaries that they may be developing capabilities that may possibly even outmatch the United States? We spend an awful lot of time between myself and my CISO, Paul Beckman, thinking about how we will ensure the security of our network. Uh, we focus on several different things. Most importantly is cyber hygiene. We make sure that we're moving down path to WinTabin. We make sure that we're moving down path on patching, and we, we hold our folks accountable. We raise the bar on the standards that we are holding our folks accountable for getting their patches out. Now that makes their scores go down, but we're trying to force better compliance, faster compliance. Two-factor authentication is a must. So we're beginning to think about the future because, like you said, our adversaries are getting smarter, and they have the same tools available that we do. So we have begun the discussion on zero trust and how we're going to do that. Uh, my CTO, Brian Teeple, is going to have the lead. He's going to work very closely with my operations organization, my applications organization, 
and my security organization and how do we want to roll this out? I don't view going to zero trust as like a digital kind of thing. One day we flip a switch and we're there. I see it as a process over time where we roll out aspects of it. And what we have to decide is where are the right places to roll out? Where do I get the most bang for the buck for doing something? Or where do I have most of the pieces in place that I can roll that out? We need to be thinking about the future. Cloud, IoT, 5G is going to change the space. And we have to start thinking more about how we defend in that environment. I think zero trust begins to get you there. I think that those technologies also start breaking down the perimeter defense model. So it's a combination of optimizing our socks, making sure they're right, making sure we have the right tools in place, a la continuous diagnostic monitoring, and making sure that we're thinking about the future and how we want to instantiate security with our network. And the leading edge thing for me right now is zero trust. Well, you've talked a lot about technology. You talked a lot about process and procedure. At the end of the day, that discipline is key to a, 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 high, a clean hygiene when you're going with cyber to use, uh, kind of turn some of your words. But, you know, where you're sitting, is there future technologies that, you know, we should be aware of, look out for, invest in that may actually change the tide? I mean, there's a perfect storm going on right now, right? The perfect storm of artificial intelligence, cloud computing, um, you know, uh, new technologies like quantum computing, uh, new network highways that allow the access capability of data, which, uh, you know, people getting access to your data or changing your data can change the outcome of making good decisions or bad decisions. Um, is there a technology out there that you're particularly keeping an eye out on? Uh, the technology that worries me the most is quantum computing, because I believe that is fundamentally the thing that changes the battlefield the most. If I was to encourage our government to invest in anything is to make sure we never fall behind in the path to quantum computing. We need to get there. We need to get there first. We need to make sure that we understand it and employ it properly. But let me be a little bit more practical and bring it closer to home. Um, one of the things I do with my CIOs throughout the components and my staff is, and, and I think you know this, we do industry visits. We get out and we see what's going on in industry. We get out of our little comfortable offices and go out to the West Coast where it's actually nicer in terms of weather than here sometimes, right? Yes, it is. It is, right? But we get out there and we meet with these companies that are doing things that are more um, innovative, more cutting edge, just to get a sense of what's coming and start thinking about how we can bring it in. So I'll be doing a, a swing through some uh, West Coast companies at the end of uh, June. And I'll be doing it in conjunction with uh, the leaders of our science and technology side of DHS. So Bill, Brian, and I are working a joint CIO S&T trip out there. And really, if you think about how those two things to come together. So science and technology from DHS is about looking at those new technologies and helping develop them and bring them forward. Well, as, as he's making that investment, how do I ensure that that technology gets on my network? Or one of our component CIOs sees an advantage there and can find a path or a home for it. So we want to construct that kind of relationship where we're making smart investments that lead to mission improvement. Now, we've looked at a lot of trips. We've looked at a lot of things, and I think you're absolutely right on machine learning and AI. When you combine that with 5G and you think about what can be done with drones, the, the possibilities are endless. When you put compute power out there and you think about what language translation can bring to the mix. But specifically for me, within the management staff at HQ, you know, we're beginning to look at an intelligent automation strategy where we look at robotic process automation, machine learning, and AI. 
not all at once. Start at the low end with RPA and begin rolling that out or looking for areas where you can roll it out in areas of finance or HR or procurement to begin bringing those processes in to improve efficiency. Just make us better. I'm speaking with Dr. John Zagardi, CIO at DHS. Coming up, we'll talk if there was something in your past, and Dr. Zangardi's past, if he could do over, he would. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Dr. John Zangardi, CIO, DHS. Dr. Z, we talked about the need to get more people in the tech field, um, that we need to recruit more talent to fill the gap for these numerous jobs and very important jobs in technology and cyber. One clear way that we're going to have to, if you just look at the numbers, is to help train and recruit a more diverse workforce. Most of the tech talent, um, especially the workforce out on the West Coast, is a very low percentage of women and minorities. Um, In some areas in AI, I just read a report, it was less than 10%. How can we be more inclusive and get more of a diverse pool of talent and recruit a more diverse talent to fill these jobs? So, Aileen, thanks for asking. I'm going to kind of cut across three different areas that I think we need to focus on. This is important for our nation's security and our competitiveness in the economic global marketplace. So we need to start with these people when they're young. Primarily, we have to focus on developing interests and skills that are useful for the future. So let me pick this up with being a little bit more specific. Years ago, and it still exists, there was something called Reading is Fundamental or RIF. Part of the concept there was that, hey, anyone can learn to read if we put enough time into it. We develop the confidence, and we worked on the skills to get people to read. So I think we need math is fundamental, right? We have to take the time as leaders. People who are moms and dads or teachers or aunts or uncles or grandparents need to get in there with the younger folks, and I think particularly females, and make sure that they're interested in math. We have to develop their competence. If they need help, we have to coach them through it and get them to understand the value of math and give them the tools to be accomplished in math. If you're not working it your entire career, you're not going to get to college and take a calculus course in Excel, right? You have to build the foundation, and the foundation starts young. We focus on that with our kids. My wife and I have ensured that my daughter, who's now 14, likes math, and we're kind of lucky that she likes it, but we spent the time making sure that we equipped her with the tools and the confidence to be able to excel. But moving a little bit Further down the food chain when younger people, females, minorities, are in the work pipeline and they're junior, people who are senior, like myself and others, senior executives, need to focus on mentorship with encouragement. We need to talk to people and go, hey, look it, you could do this, and give them the ideas on how they can move forward. You know, one of the things when I look back when I was young, I mean, I grew up with a working class family, no one went to college until I did, is, well, what are the steps in a career path? didn't really understand it. I was lucky I was in the Navy. They give you a career path and you have to accept that there really isn't a choice. But if you're out there in the commercial world or you're in government as a GS, the career path is less clear. And it probably will always remain somewhat nebulous. But it's important for senior leaders to get in there and give the mentorship where these people can begin to understand, oh, yeah, I see how you did it and you're showing me how I can do it. That's important. 
and to do it in a way that's encouraging. And even if that means telling them the truth, that they need to go get a different skill or a different job to beef up their resume to make them more competitive. But I want to focus lastly on something that I think is important. Uh, our hiring panels, when we look to hire new people to come on as an executive, we take the time, the care to make sure that the panel is representative of diversity. Do we have a minority on the panel? Yes, we do. Do we have a female on the panel? To make sure that we're very inclusive, to make sure that we're not putting some sort of unconscious bias into the mix and cutting someone out who should not be cut out. So what I'm trying to frame here is a continuum from when folks are young that we need to encourage them and give them the tools to be broad in their understanding that it's, it's a lot of skills. The future is interdisciplinary. It's just not one side of your brain. And that we have to encourage and mentor people as they're moving into the workforce and through the workforce that we prepare them to be executives and tell them how to get from A to B. And we have to make sure that our hiring panels are composed in a way that we don't unconsciously exclude folks. John, you've had success not only limited to your career, but you also have had uh, have a family and are active in so many things. How do you do all that? I mean, can you tell how you found the, you know, the balance to make it all work? I, I mean, I, I actually hate uh, when somebody says, um, you know, finding balance because I think, you know, actually it's about making choices. So how do you either make choices or find a way of balancing those choices so that you can have success both in your family and in your career? So I, I agree with you. My life is completely unbalanced. Um, so when you take on a job like this as the DHSCI or any of the previous jobs I've had, work is a, a pretty demanding thing. Uh, so you have to find a way to break out of it and spend time with your family. So there's vacations, there's weekends, there's after hours. But generally, after you do a full day of 12-plus hours and there's still emails in the queue when you get home, you're pretty tired, but you, you kind of have to gut it through. So balance is never the right word. It's, uh, it's persistence. And, and let's be clear about one thing, going back to the earlier answer about young kids. We have to teach the younger generation something called persistence. You could be very intelligent, but if you lack persistence, it's unlikely you'll be very successful in life. So it isn't about balance. It's about persistence and pursuing the things that you think are important. And that is family first. Even though work is overwhelming and probably takes up most of our waking lives, you have to be persistent and finding a way to block that out and move on to family. Were there occasions where you had to make a tough choice between work and personal life? You know, you deal with things as they come up every day. So I will tell you in general, no, there haven't been big decision points because I've been very fortunate in my wife, Wendy, where she supports me at work. Um, you know my wife, Aileen, and she made a decision that she really wanted to be a full-time mom. If Wendy had not made that decision years ago, this would have been very different because we would have parsed life differently. Uh, but she really wanted that experience, and that's the way things worked out. And for me, at least in this career path, I've been very fortunate. But I will say this about Wendy. She is a great mom, and she's done a wonderful job raising me and our two kids. Well, I, I have heard from several guests and, and other very successful people choosing the right partner in life, and I use the word partner with a very capital P, is key to the, the success. So um, I agree totally. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, and our guest today is Dr. John Zangardi, CIO of DHS. You have had a huge uh, career. 
Uh, what's next for Dr. Z, or should I ask, is there something you want to add on uh, about your your life? So right now I'm focused on the things that we're doing at DHS. We have a massive amount of challenges to take on over the next year. Uh, we need to get better at empowering our workforce, driving in talent management, and driving in that new technology that makes a difference in how we do our mission. Those are big challenges. And, you know, if you've been in IT long enough, it takes leadership to drive these things out. The major impediment to rolling out technology is not the technology, it's the people. And that sounds terrible, but it's getting everybody to be marching in the same direction to do the right things, to get it out there. It's about prioritizing and understanding the obstacles and working to remove those obstacles when they pop up. That's where the challenge is, and that's where the excitement is. You've known me for a long time. You know I get excited with hard things. For the next generation, i got to ask you, a federal leaders then, because you, you, ex- you don't get excited on everything, though. You have a good eye for technology and how that's going to change the changing technology landscape and how it will affect missions. Any a key advice you would give to the next generation of federal leaders or any predictions on the next big challenges they will face? The key, the key advice I'd give to the next generation of leaders is don't be discouraged. Uh, I remember one of my mentors, Ken Miller in the Navy, when I was looking at becoming an SES or even Joe Decker uh, if from the Navy, and they talked to me about being an SES, and the words they used, it's like getting struck by lightning, which means uh, the probability is low, but you, you can't give up on it. So that persistence, you got to have good mentors who – are truthful with you and tell you what you need. Um, you shouldn't scoff at what your mentors tell you, but you should have multiple mentors so you can cage the quality of the answers you're getting. So mentorship, taking advantage of what others think, the persistence, the hard work, those are key things that a future leader should aspire to. Having a good mentor goes a long way and listening to his advice. And I will give one more piece of advice to someone who'd like to be an SES. It really is. You have to find an area that you like that helps you be motivated every day to come in and be persistent and excel. And that has to make you happy. If it doesn't make you happy, why are you doing it? Right? Because you don't want to be an unhappy senior executive. You want to be a happy senior executive that drives change. Uh, So that's the advice I'd give, Aileen. My guest today has been Dr. John Zingardi, CIO of DHS. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.